And as we come to your word now, O Lord, we pray that you would be magnified, that your eternal power, your sovereign authority would be manifest to us this morning. Renew our minds, O God. Grow us in wisdom and understanding, not for its own sake, Lord God, but for the sake of knowing you more, for glorifying you in our lives. Work within us by your Spirit. Open our minds and our hearts, Lord God, to receive your word by faith this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be looking at the tail end of Hebrews chapter 1 today, verses 10 through 14. About a year ago, we held a short series of preaching labs in this congregation with the men in this church. It was a way for us to be able to uh, encourage and um, practice the preaching of God's Word in a context that allowed us to receive feedback. Well, I began a series in the book of Hebrews looking at the first nine verses in two separate messages. And by God's grace, today we'll be moving that into the morning for you all. So my prayer is that it would be a blessing and an encouragement um, to everybody here. So that's why we're starting where we are today. And Hebrews is a letter that really bridges the gap between the Old and New Testaments in such a way that it brings Christ to the forefront of all of Scripture. And that's a big part of what makes it such a rich book for the church to receive and to study. In our previous two lessons, we saw that Christ is God's full revelation of himself. We saw that in verse 2, who has been appointed heir of all things and by whom all things were made. Verse 3, we saw that he is the exact imprint of God's nature and human form and that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And that he, after making purification for sins on the cross, has inherited a more excellent name than all the angels. Verse 4. And then the author of Hebrews, which according to church tradition was penned by the Apostle Paul, puts forth seven examples out of the Old Testament to prove unambiguously the divinity of Christ and to demonstrate his unquestioned superiority over the angels by way of comparison. We see the unique sonship of Christ in verse 5, that he is worthy of worship, verse 6, that he exercises authority over the angels, verse 7, and that he has established his kingdom in righteousness, which will have no end, having been appointed by God above all his kinsmen, according to the flesh, verses 8 and 9. And contrary to any sort of Gnostic influences that may have been um, positing that Christ was a spirit being or perhaps an angel himself, the author demonstrates that Christ is truly human while also being exalted in power and glory above the angels. On the other hand, to counteract the notion that Christ was merely a wise teacher or that he came to be an earthly military conqueror, Christ is shown to be truly God and moreover that his kingdom has been established. It has been established. And that he is presently reigning spiritually over his people. And that brings us to where we are today. The author employs his last two examples from the Old Testament in order to demonstrate that Christ is the eternal, immutable God and that his kingdom will not fail. That he will rule 
and reign until all his enemies are defeated. And that the angels, by comparison, are simply his ministering servants sent forth to advance the purpose of his kingdom. That being to render aid to his people as he sees fit in their mission, our mission, to preach the gospel. Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of America shortly before his death in 1790, wrote to a friend in Paris about the state of this country. The United States Constitution had been ratified a year prior, and he said something that has stuck with people through the generations. Two famous axioms. He said, Our new Constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Most of you have probably heard that phrase before, and in a sense, he's right. In this world, we know that death lies at everybody's doorstep eventually, if the Lord should tarry. And we know that the government, the human authorities who depend on its subjects to sustain it, will continue to take from them in order to survive, and in many cases grow, for better or for worse. (laughs) We know that, right? We live that, and we feel that every day, practically speaking. But in the context of eternity, God's kingdom is quite different. In fact, in many ways, it's the complete opposite. We have an eternal, unchangeable God who doesn't need anything from us. He's entirely self-sufficient. And rather than demanding tribute from his subjects, he lavishes them with gifts, too many to count, too wonderful to fully fathom, the greatest of which being to know him, to know him. The difference between eternal life and eternal death is not measured in one's ability to think or feel or exist in some ethereal state for an indefinite period of time, nor is it even intrinsically tied to the place where we're consciously located. Rather, it's qualitatively, whether or not you know God. Not just the facts about God, but do you know him intimately, as Father, as Lord, as Savior, as the Creator and Sustainer of all things, by whom and through whom we live and move and have our being, as the Holy, Holy, Holy God, who is eternal, in whom our will, our heart's desire, will be centered upon if we are indeed alive in Him and walking by His Spirit. It starts by faith alone, gifted through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, and it blossoms into a life that ascribes glory and praise to the God whom we love, whose attributes we are enamored by and desire to reflect insofar as humanly possible. That's why Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, recorded in John chapter 17, says in verses 1 to 3, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to whom, to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But in order to know him in the fullness of truth, it is imperative that we do get the facts straight about him. Who is Jesus? What did he come to accomplish? 
And how does he tie into the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament Scriptures? Well, the author of Hebrews is undertaking that very task to explain to his predominantly Jewish audience the person and work of Christ, the Messiah. They needed instruction and perhaps correction on who the Messiah is and what he came to accomplish in his earthly ministry. With that understanding, let's read together his last two points of argument from verses 10 to 14. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 to 14. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So the author here uses two quotes from the Old Testament, one from Psalm 102 and one from Psalm 110, respectively. Now the Jewish audience understood this much from the scriptures, that the Messiah was to come as a liberator, but they applied it to the civil realm to be an earthly king. What they needed to understand was the divinity of Christ in connection with his messiahship. That's why it's imperative that the author prove from the scriptures, first, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that Christ is no less than God incarnate. And for the record, Christ's work will apply to the civil realm in its proper time. But to start and extending on to these last days in which we live, the nature of the Messiah's work is characteristically spiritual. We find this principle throughout the Bible that in order for any earthly good to come, it must start with a new heart. Suppose that Christ did come in his first advent to establish an earthly kingdom. Who would be able to stand in his presence? None of us, because none are righteous. No, not one. And God's kingdom is one of righteousness. It must be, because God is so holy that he will not have even a speck of sin in his presence. Romans chapter 14, verse 7 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Just prior to his ascension, the disciples asked of Jesus, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? That's from Acts chapter 1, verse 6. They still believed that Christ's mission would be the restoration of the kingdom of Israel into a mighty nation. And how did he respond to them? Verses 7 and 8, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The Messiah had come to liberate his people, but not from human governing authorities, not yet, but from the bondage of the law and sin. How did he do that? Through the cross. By his death in our place, taking upon himself our sin 
and imputing His perfect righteousness to us and putting His Spirit in us and causing us to walk in His statutes so that we are no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23-24 to 24 says this, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The Jewish audience of Hebrews accepted Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. They knew that he died on the cross, but what did he accomplish by it? How could a man's death, and the Messiah's death no less, cause any good? It's foolishness, so they thought. In order to make any sense of that, in order for them to make it fit within their framework of understanding, they first had to grasp this beyond any doubt, that Christ is God incarnate, that in God's master plan, he's infinitely greater, working something more wonderful, more splendid than they could have imagined. Their view of the Messiah was too small, their understanding of the cross under attack from outside influences, and frankly, faltering. So the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 102 and applies it to Christ in order to establish the connection between, between his Messiahship and his divinity. Verses 10 and 12, 10 to 12 says this, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands, and they will perish, but you remain. And they will all become like a garment, an old like a garment, like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Verse 10 unmistakably harkens back to Genesis chapter 1. The author is applying the creation account to Christ the Son. Now keep in mind that in the thrust of this entire argument, he's still comparing and contrasting the works of Christ to the angels. And we know that no angel played a role in creation. There are some in our day who subscribe to a certain theory of interpretation called the divine counsel theory. They'll look at a passage like Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 where God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and infer this to be God speaking to his angels. And we don't have time to go through that whole rabbit hole of interpretation, but suffice it to say, the context of Genesis 1, I think, does not really allow that. It's clear God is the one in focus when it says that he said and God did and it was so. There's nothing to suggest that God is speaking to his angels here. And furthermore, man is uniquely made in God's image. We have what we call the imago dei. Angels who are created beings are not image bearers of God. That's not what they were created for. So that leaves angels out of the picture of creation. The church's historical interpretation of that Genesis passage, working off the broader context of the scriptures, is that we're getting a glimpse of God in an intertrinitarian dialogue. And what we know from the opening verses of John's gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. 
All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So the scriptures resoundingly attest to Christ's deity and role as creator. But what about as sustainer? Verses 11 to 12 says, They will perish, that being the heavens and the earth, but you remain. And they will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Now, have you ever tried to imagine what the end of the world will look like? Everything that you've ever seen, every place you've ever been, all gone, annihilated. It's hard to imagine. When we see a natural disaster, as we tend to call them, on the news, we get distressed for the people who are involved in that, understandably so. But Scripture gives us a vivid description of something much bigger than we can even begin to see or imagine. Cosmic annihilation, the true heat death of the universe. Second Peter chapter 3 says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away, with a roar of the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening, the com- looking and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now to some, the thought of this present world being annihilated can be quite scary. I get that. But know this, for those who are in Christ, we can rest assured that what's coming in the new heavens and new earth is far more precious, far more lovely, far more glorious. How do we know that? Well, for one, there will be no more sin. The effects of the fall will be completely removed from our presence. But second, and more importantly, Christ will make them, and he will be there with us and dwell with us forever. If we love Christ truly, will we not also rejoice in his restoring all things to himself. Therefore, it's necessary that the old be done away with, like an old garment, it says in the quotation from Psalm 102. Would any of us here sincerely want to continue wearing the same clothes that we wore 20 or 30 years ago? No doubt they'd be distorted, discolored, buttons missing, riddled with holes, and other deformities. They become uncomfortable. They become unsuitable for a covering. And that's what the Bible says this world is becoming. Old and worn by the effects of the fall and sin. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 22 says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth 
together until now. For the Christian, we know that this world is not our home. That's why Christ admonishes us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Understand that the only thing we can take with us into heaven and ultimately the new creation is the work we do for the kingdom of God, namely, reaching the lost with the gospel. Does that put your concerns in perspective when you're tempted to fret? Does that change your priorities? Because it should. It should. What we see in verses 11 to 12 is God's immutability, His unchangingness. Though the heavens and the earth pass away, Christ remains. His years will not come to an end. Furthermore, His omniscience and sovereignty, His plans do not change. He knows all things before they happen. That's why He can inform us of the things to come in advance. Before the fall, before the foundation of the world, even in eternity past, God had determined to send His Son into the world to redeem it. There was no course correction. There was no plan B. God's purpose in allowing the fall was to show Himself not only as righteous Creator, but as gracious Redeemer. The old garment is not simply removed from His presence, according to the analogy, but it is exchanged for a new one, a better one. James chapter 1, verse 18 says, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. That is to say, we who are born again according to the Spirit by faith have been born into a new beginning, the new creation, with Christ our elder brother as the firstborn among His brethren the foremost among his people. At the present, though we are alive spiritually in Christ by faith, our bodies remain subject to sin and decay. We know that because we die. Though for the Christian, death has lost its sting. And we still struggle with sin. The key word there being struggle. But when our bodies are raised up in the resurrection, they will be raised incorruptible with sin, with, without a sin nature. Well, if that's not enough to demonstrate who Christ is, the, authority, or the author of Hebrews continues on to his next point. Let's look at verses 13 to 14. He continues his argument by saying, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render services for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now the author is quoting from Psalm 110, a psalm well known for its messianic overtones. In fact, you'd be interested to know that this psalm is the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the entirety of the New Testament. 
It's the same psalm that Jesus quoted in Matthew chapter 22 when the Sadducees and Pharisees were gathered together questioning him, trying to catch him at some point of vulnerability in his teaching. It says, Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, or until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Those Pharisees had misunderstood Psalm 110 because they did not apprehend who the second Lord is. How could David call his son to be Lord? The first use of the word Lord there, capital L-O-R-D in our English translations, is referring to God by his covenant name, Yahweh. But the second Lord is the Hebrew word Adon, from the same root as Adonai. It essentially means master, king, or strong and mighty ruler. The implication coming from David is that he is one higher in authority than himself, this Lord whom he's speaking of. Now the Pharisees understood that to be a messianic reference, but for David, the king, to reference his son as being of even higher authority than himself is a major problem. You see, in their understanding, to be king of Israel is the highest authority a man could be. So how, then, could this coming Lord, this Messiah, whom they assume to be an earthly military ruler, be even higher? It's unthinkable. Unless, of course, he is no ordinary man, but is in fact the eternal, everlasting God. That is the point that Christ is making of himself. And with that in mind, the, he- the author of Hebrews utilizes a very similar argument, but in this case applied to the angels. The answer to his rhetorical question in verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said, is obviously none. We see no examples in Scripture of angels sharing the sovereign authority with God to rule over creation nor do we see them getting praise from God at any time. Now, that's not to disparage angels by any means, but to simply say that God created them to serve His purposes within His created order. While humanity in our fallen flesh may deem it fitting to ascribe worship to angels and serve the creature rather than the Creator, as Romans chapter 1, verse 25 tells us, the Scripture makes no provision for that whatsoever. Even the Apostle John, who received the revelation given to him on the island of Patmos, said in Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. The angel is absolutely right. Our worship is to be directed to the one who is seated on the throne, 
not his servants, nor anything in creation, because to do, to, to do that is idolatry. And that's also why we see the value of reciting historical, orthodox catechisms and creeds like the Nicene Creed to remind us of who it is who is seated at the right hand of the Father because of how prone we are to forget it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 11, 6 to 11 says this, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, to be unrelentingly clung to, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now to say that, that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father has two connotations. One is symbolic of a royal court setting in which the king or ruler is seated on his central throne with all things around him pointing to him to frame his majesty, as it were. And to sit beside him at his right-hand side, the side that symbolizes strength and authority and power, is to have the seat of highest honor. But the second application is a true one, a heavenly reality, and not merely a symbol only. Christ is truly ruling besides his Father at his heavenly throne, and not resting, but working for you. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Stephen, before his martyrdom in Acts chapter 7, verse 56, saw a glimpse of the heaven reality. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We also know that Christ is making preparation for his people. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3 says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Those are the words of Christ. Now what does it mean when it says in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 1, Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, it was the practice of kings and military leaders back in Israel's ancient warring days to put the feet up on the necks of their defeated adversaries to illustrate their victory and having brought their enemies under subjugation. Having several brothers myself, I can attest to the validity of that. <laughs> and who are Christ's enemies? Well, basically they are anyone or anything ultimately that falls short of the glory of God, that does not conform to his standard of righteousness. And that's all of us at one point or another. All of us here today either are or were 
enemies of God. For those who have received Christ by faith, we have been reconciled, Romans chapter 5 tells us, through the shedding of his blood for our sins. We are vessels of mercy, Romans chapter 9 verse 23, being covered with the judge's own perfect righteousness by the shedding of his blood on the cross for us. But the only alternative judgment that we can receive and the most popular one by far is to be a vessel of wrath, to face God naked, uncovered, with your sins laid to bear. To them they will stand at Christ's left side at the judgment seat and he will say to them, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's from Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Our hope as the people of God is not merely a heavenly one, but one of resurrection power and a new creation in which we will dwell with Christ. The Apostle John, in his vision on Patmos, says this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Samuel Rutherford a well-known Scottish Presbyterian minister, famously said, O my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be heaven to me, for thou art the heaven I want. Friends, to be free from sin is a precious jewel indeed. But to be in the presence of God never to be removed, to enjoy him and know him is the very substance of eternal life. Could anything be more precious? To enjoy him and to know him, can anything soothe our soul like knowing forever that we are at peace, reconciled with him, our God for whom we have been made? St. Augustine famously said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. This is most certainly true for every Christian. No idol can satisfy our needs. Christ is our God. We must worship Him. We must learn to adore Him. The glory of our salvation is not simply at being at ease forever, but is the privilege of praising the God of our salvation for all eternity, for who He is and all He has done for us. Now, what are the angels and their role in all of this? Looking at verse 14, 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? In a time and context in which angels were highly revered and mystified, not unlike how they are in our day, the author directs the reader's attention toward their function in God's plan of redemption. This is to put them in perspective and highlight the stark contrast between the servants and their master. There's simply no confusing the two. No matter how powerful or important the angels are to God's work, their authority, their majesty, can never begin to compete with God's. In rabbinic tradition, the angels were seen to have taken on an almost mediatorial role between God and man. But this is false because we know that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The angels' function is to serve him. And we're told that they minister. How? Well, some commentators of a certain persuasion argue that they minister only in the future tense, because in the phrase in verse 14 of who will inherit salvation, the implication being that the angels don't know who God's elect are, and so perhaps in a well-meaning attempt to ground the Christian's experience in a culture like ours, which is obsessed with the supernatural in many ways, these commentators would argue that the angels only minister to Christ's people at the point of his return. But I think if we look at the totality of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we see that angels are present all throughout. We see them rendering aid to God's people as he sees fit, including after Christ's ascension. And if we take the book of Hebrews at face value, it seems to assume that the angels will be and are now ministering to God's people. But... We don't want to overemphasize the role of angels because we know, for example, that God has not sent them to proclaim the gospel, but men and women like us. Nevertheless, we know that God works through means, which certainly includes angels. So we can assume it is at least possible, if not probable, that God's angels do work within the lives of Christians and are waging spiritual warfare on our behalf against those of the enemy the angels of Satan, those who would seek to stop the proclamation of the gospel. But I would also add that God has chosen not to divulge the specific operations in the day-to-day lives of Christians in which angels would enact, nor given us the ability to see them, perhaps if no other reason than he knows, like the Apostle John, that if we could see them, we would be far too enamored and distracted by them. But what we can say is that where there is smoke, there is fire. Where there is a great need, God will supply the resources to advance his kingdom. But our hope, our strength, is not found in angelic help, but in the God who is the Lord of the angels. The direction of the author's entire argument from the beginning of chapter 1 is leading up to this, which, Lord willing, we'll cover in more detail in the next, the next sermon. 
chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 says this. For this reason, so in light of all we've discussed, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Away from what? The teachings of Christ and the apostles and ultimately the gospel. Verse 2, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The author is basically making the point that if, we're, if they've so revered the angels and the messages administered through them in the Old Testament, how much more so with all diligence should they grapple and should we grapple with the truth that has been revealed through God's only begotten Son. This is most certainly true for us too, friends. If we value our lives, our resources, the gifts that God has lavished upon us, how much more so should we seek to know and be reconciled to the giver of all those things, who is also the righteous judge and the sovereign ruler of the universe? who is so superior to the angels and all things and who will be there at the end of time as he was at the beginning and he will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And how much greater will the judgment be if having seen his worth revealed through his word, through his son and seen the sinfulness of a sin by the law, and received joyfully the time and resources that God has graciously given us only to at the end neglect his greatest gift, which is Christ Jesus himself, his life, his death, and resurrection. He will come again to bring our deeds into judgment. We all must stand before him to give an account the question is, in whose righteousness will you stand? Will you stand in your own filth? That can only send us to hell because God must punish all sin for the wages of sin is death and the eternal sentence is condemnation in hell. But for those who stand in the righteousness of Christ, he has borne the wrath of God on our behalf. May God grant us eyes to see and ears to hear that we may be reconciled to the one true God by faith in his Son with hearts of thankfulness and praise to him forever for who he is and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the revelation of your Son. We thank you for who he is and what he has accomplished for us. We thank you that we know that he is our God, our Redeemer, our Savior, the Messiah who was foretold in the Old Testament through the Law and the Prophets 
and who fulfills all these things and that you give us this word, Lord God, in your holy scriptures, Lord, that we may know and see who he is and rejoice in that, that we may believe in him and learn to know him more and more richly. Oh God, grant that each of us may know him this morning and that we may live for him, not for the things of this world which are passing away like an old garment that will be changed, but to live for the things that are eternal, the things that will last, the things which you have ordained for good, the preaching of your word, the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of who Christ is and what he has accomplished. May many be reconciled to him today, Lord God. And we pray that you would continue to work through the means that you have ordained to do that. So work in our lives, Lord God. Give us the desire in our hearts to worship him and live for him, our Savior and our God. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.